0: Welcome to today's St. Paul's Church of the Voyager podcast. I'm Pastor Rob Fiesler, and I am glad that you are listening today. Our text this morning is uh, the Gospel of John, again, chapter 20. Um, And here is uh, the reading from that Gospel for today. When it was evening on that day, that day being the day of the resurrection, the first Easter, evening of that day, the first day of the week, and the doors of the house where the disciples had met were locked for fear of the Jewish leadership of Jerusalem, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. After he said this, he showed them his hands and his side. they are retained. We pray, O God, that your Holy Spirit, just as this Gospel promises, that your Spirit will guide us now into all truth. We pray this in the name of Jesus, the one who said, I am the truth. And all of God's people shall say, Amen. Well, as I've already alluded and Justine mentioned earlier, Uh, Many of you will recognize that this is the same passage as we had last Sunday. And here we are again. For a quick refresher, or if you were not uh, here with us, we're encountering here one of a number of surpassingly strange appearances of Jesus after his execution and burial. This appearance occurs on that first Easter evening, Jesus quite suddenly appearing in the midst of a locked room filled with his frightened, confused, traumatized friends. By the way, only the Gospel of John uses the term friends to speak of Jesus' disciples and his relationship to them. But Jesus seemingly appears out of nowhere in this instance, and yet appears with the visible wounds of crucifixion marking his resurrection body. Let's keep those wounds in mind. They're going to be important this morning. Well, they're important all the time. They're going to be important for this sermon. We talked last week about the fact that Jesus apparently finds it necessary to bestow the blessing, peace be with you, upon his disciples two distinct times, which seems Well, at least a little redundant. I shared that a friend and fellow theologian, Shelley Rambo, has suggested that both blessings were necessary. Basically, when you boil it down to it, because Jesus is really good at reading a room. This was a room packed with fear. So while John reports that the disciples rejoiced when they realized it was Jesus... They needed to come to much deeper terms with their own fears and anxieties, their own woundedness and trauma over Jesus' violent execution, their own recent history of abandoning and denying Jesus, of fearing for their lives. And they didn't need to do this not because Jesus is like rubbing it in their faces. It's not like some kind of You know, boy, you guys really failed me kind of a thing. But really, the only way of moving forward with honesty and humility into the future into which God was now calling them, that second peace be unto you spoken from a wounded Jesus is extremely critical. At least that's what Shelley Rambo believes about this text, and I haven't found a better interpretation, so I'm going to stay with her. Now, I know that this series has been advertised as sermons more or less deriving from a, a book I wrote way back when I was much younger called The Story of God, and I appreciate that some of you have purchased that book and have been reading along during these weeks. I offer you my humble gratitude wherever you might be. I also admit that it's probably been a little challenging at times to locate exactly like what chapter of the book best corresponds with what I might be preaching on a certain morning. But I want to end this series on a strong note in that regard. So I got to wondering this past week if I'd written anything about this passage in John chapter 20 in the book, because I couldn't remember for sure, but lo and behold, it's there. So here's what I found in that book. Uh, So I'm going to quote now from, well, a younger, more slender version of me. And here it is. Here in John 20, we read of a living Jesus in the midst of his disciples bestowing God's shalom. That's that beautiful Hebrew word that we translate peace. It just has this really big, beautiful sort of notion of well-being and harmony, of everything really in peaceability. Shalom. Then, just as the Creator had breathed into Adam with the ruach, that's that, love that word, Hebrew word for breath, and wind, and spirit, any air in motion is ruach, especially when you take a nice deep breath and blow it back out. Okay? So here, just as the Creator had uh, breathed into Adam with the ruach of life in the Genesis story, so now the resurrected Jesus whom Paul calls a life giving spirit, who nonetheless is also bodily and indeed marked by the wounds of crucifixion, breathes upon the disciples to grant them the life and the power of God. And really, we've been exploring that theme in so many beautiful ways today. Musically, in the children's sermon. Todd almost always just basically takes my sermon, brings it down to about three entertaining minutes. And I always feel a little badly that then I get up here, you know, but stop doing that, Todd. No, I'm kidding. I love it. I love it. So he breathes on them. And uh, as the Father sent the Son into the world as the ultimate and decisive revelation, so the Son sends the disciples in the power of the Spirit to continue the mission of being God's representatives. Indeed, and this is the last sentence of the quotation. Jesus appears to bestow a responsibility upon the gathered disciples that Protestants have been hesitant to recognize, and that includes Methodists, the power to forgive sins. Oh, my goodness. Now, I didn't say anything more about that when I wrote this book because I didn't really know what I would say if I tried. What in the world does this mean, Jesus saying to his disciples, If you all, and it's the second person plural, y'all, if you all forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven of them. And note the passive verb here, forgiven of them, and it most certainly is meant to refer to God. They are forgiven by God. Okay. To put it as bluntly and as problematically as I can, if y'all forgive the sins of anyone, God forgives as well. I'm just quoting the Gospel of John right there. And then the second half of this odd teaching, if you all retain or hold on to, that is, do not forgive the sins of any, they are retained or held on to by God. Now, I think that our little threshold moment thing was, you know, it was a nice attempt to dodge this in some ways. I'm not expecting you to put all this together. But we're going to go head-on into this thing and try to figure out what in the world's going on in this passage. All throughout this series, we've been encountering biblical stories that testify to God's willingness, and beyond willingness, God's desire to partner with us, to co-labor with us, to covenant, that's the biblical term, to covenant with us. You know, we sang this morning, Veni uh, uh, Spiritu Sancti, come Holy Spirit. That Veni in there is in the word covenant. C-O-V-E-N. We come together with God in covenant. God desires this. God longs for this kind of covenantal thing. But this seems to take it to a whole new level. If you forgive the sins of any, they're forgiven by God. If you retain those sins, they're retained by God. That's that's a whole new, scary, kind of sobering level to take this. So what might this strange text from the Gospel of John be saying to us this morning? You with me so far? I'm a professor. Any questions? There will be a test at the end of this, so I hope you're taking... Studying, remember what Todd said about studying. Nah, there's no quiz. I'm I'm kidding. First, I want to go back to Jesus breathing on his disciples and saying, Receive the Holy Spirit. I'm going to suggest once again, as I said of Jesus' bestowing of peace on his disciples last Sunday, this is what we call performative language. That is, Jesus exhaling and then speaking these words actually perform or bring about the reality of the Spirit's renewing, life-giving presence. It is like God breathing on that lump of clay back in Genesis 2 in order that it might become a living human being. It is like the holy ruach, or breath of God, parting the Red Sea, which is the way the Exodus talks about the, uh, the Israelites going through, uh, through the Red Sea, by the ruach of God's nostrils. It only took nostrils in that case. It's like God's life-giving breath, wind, spirit, blowing through Ezekiel's valley of dry bones, if you've ever read that story to renew and to revive the people of Israel. And it wasn't an accident, I'm sure, that Kenneth played a beautiful version of Revive Us Again this morning as we began worship. It's like all of that, but more. And and that's what the Gospel of John adds here, and it's a really important more, and here's what it is. It is the crucified, wounded Jesus who breathes On his disciples it's the Jesus with the marks of crucifixion who breathes and says receive the Holy Spirit now why is that important well I want to try to explain this to you earlier in the same gospel gospel of John back in chapter 7 Jesus offered this invitation let anyone who is thirsty come to me and let the one who believes in me drink by the way we see here a different metaphor for the Holy Spirit both as breath, but sometimes also as water. Let anyone who is thirsty come to me and let the one who believes in me drink. As the scripture has said, out of their heart shall flow rivers of living water. Now the gospel of John goes on to say that Jesus said this about the spirit, which believers in him were to receive, but as yet there was no spirit, or at least no spirit given. And here's the reason why. Because Jesus was not yet glorified. That's in John 7. Because Jesus was not yet glorified. What's the connection? Well, here's the crazy thing. In the Gospel of John, we have an entirely surprising fact that Jesus' hour of glory or his glorification is when he is lifted up. And on what is he lifted up? On the cross. That, in the Gospel of John, is the hour of glory, which seems kind of weird. I don't know about you, but at first glance, being crucified doesn't seem terribly glorious. Jesus, nailed to a Roman crucifix, gasping for air, just dying for some ruach, bleeding out, and finally choking to death. It's not a pretty sight, Now, I know we've got a beautiful sanctuary and a nicely adorned cross and everything, but let's just, you know, run the tape back about 2,000 years ago. This is a horrific experience and a horrible way, of course, to die. In the Gospel of John, God's glory is a very strange kind of glory. I hope you'll forgive this rhyme, but it's kind of a gory glory. It is the glory of a humble, self-giving, other-receiving, lay-down-your-life kind of love. That's the glory of God revealed in Jesus. So you see, when Jesus appeared in the midst of that room that was so filled with fear that all the air had been sucked right out of it, his breathing out upon his stifled, suffocating friends was a breathing, a ruach, a spirit that came flowing from his wounded, strangely glorified body. A body marked with wounds. The Holy Spirit does not erase or efface Jesus' wounds. Rather, the Holy Spirit issues forth from and through those very wounds. The Spirit was not yet given because Jesus was not yet glorified. It is a cruciform Spirit that Jesus exhales upon his disciples on that first Easter evening and also upon us this very morning. I loved as we prayed that beautiful Taze prayer, Come Holy Spirit, and to think about as the Gospel of John presents it, that spirit coming to us literally from this wounded one bearing the marks of crucifixion. A couple of other New Testament passages come to mind. In the book of Revelation, we encounter a description of the resurrected Jesus that just seems at first glance just kind of weird. He's initially described as the lion of the tribe of Judah a lion and then in the very next scene when he actually makes his appearance suddenly this lion is described as well you tell me as a what I knew some of you knew as a lamb I just thought I'd get professorial there was that you Tom yes as a lamb and not simply a lamb but a lamb and I quote revelation standing as if it, it had been slaughtered I don't even know what kind of standing that is It doesn't sound very overpowering and powerful, standing as if it had been slaughtered. Wow. I also think that the Apostle Paul, writing to his troublesome Corinthian congregation, recalling that when he first came to Corinth to preach God's good news, in his words, I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And it's that word crucified that gets me. I remember in my seminary days, and I'm going to point out that uh, I have a friend from my seminary days who's here today, very good scholar, good, good fine uh, layperson theologian. Michael, good to see you. Back when we were in seminary together, um, I took a course in Corinthians, and I remember studying about this, uh, this term. Now, um, I don't know, honestly, whether it's past perfect tense. It might be the pluperfect. I guarantee you that my mastery of Greek was never anywhere near perfect. But the term in the Greek, I res- one commentator's comment has stayed with me all these years. He said, Jesus Christ in him crucified is a lot like saying, Jesus Christ who still bears his wounds. Who still bears his wounds. We serve a wounded Savior. And the spirit breath he breathes upon us proceeds from a crucified body. We do not and we cannot gloss over those wounds. They mark him as the lamb who takes away the sins of the world. But then, how does all of this connect with that last bit about forgiving and retaining sins? And that's where we're going to end. Which is not to say, I mean, I've got a little bit more to say, but we're getting close. First of all, remember that Jesus says to these his friends, as the Father sent me, so now I send you. We talked about that last week. Um, Send us where, exactly? We're really not all that interested in leaving this room, Jesus. At least it feels a little safe in here with the doors locked and everything, and it's even better now that you're here with us. We're so small, so weak, so fearful, so insignificant. Can't we just, you know, stay here where it's relatively safe? I'm sure they had to be thinking something like that. But Jesus just keeps on and actually says this crazy thing that in many ways doesn't seem to fit with the rest of this gospel, or for that matter, the way we often think about forgiveness. But let's hear him out. Jesus is sending out this small, overmatched, frightened bunch into the world. Outside of the comforts of their four walls and locked doors, and he's sending them out to be a community of forgiveness. I cannot pretend to know all that's implied here, but the Gospel of John says, If ye all forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven by God. Oh my goodness. That's heavy stuff. And there's nothing at all in this passage to suggest that Jesus means only the sins that they might commit against one another, like within their community. They're being sent out into the world. As the Father sent me, I send you. Sent out as emissaries of forgiveness. As God's own people, God's own community of forgiveness into the world. But there's that flip side. If you retain, which means like if you hang on to, if you hold the sins of anybody, they are retained. They are held by God. My goodness. You know, for a long time, I just read this as sort of a cautionary warning, you know, and and a little bit like the threshold moment at it. You know, who really wants to hold on to sins? If you retain this, you know, it's just going to poison you, etc., I think there's something more powerful going on, and here's what I want to suggest to you. This tells me that forgiveness is not cheap. It is not easy. Too often, the church has rushed to those who have been harmed or abused or taken advantage of or hurt in any way and said, you got to forgive. Just Forgive. This passage seems to be saying something about there may be a role for the church to kind of hold on to the sins that have harmed. Forgiveness is not superficial. It's not glib. So it's not necessarily immediate or automatic. Because too often then forgiveness becomes a way of sweeping real harm and hurt and wounds under the skin. Where were Jesus' wounds? Right out there. Shelley Rambo says this kind of forgiveness requires confrontation and engagement. And that's hard. It's hard. As Jesus, the crucified one, bearing his wounds even now, breathes upon us, the spirit we are given is not a spirit of glossing over harm. I guarantee you there are many times in my life I would have just assumed, and I have, glossed over harm done. Let's not bring that up. Let's not deal with that. But harm that's done especially to the weak and the vulnerable, for the Bible, is uh, this is serious stuff. A community of forgiveness is also a community of protection of the victimized, a community of solidarity with those who are suffering. It is not about forgive and forget. The very fact that in our Apostles' Creed, which I know we don't recite every Sunday here, but you're you're familiar, we Christians through the centuries have confessed that Jesus, and I quote, suffered under Pontius Pilate. I mean, Pilate gets called out an awful lot every Sunday around the world. He really does. Suffered under Pontius Pilate. We're not forgetting that. But we don't say that in order to go like, damn that Roman governor. We are simply reciting the fact that great harm was done to an innocent person. Suffered under Pontius Pilate means we do not believe in sweeping things under the rug. Jesus still bears the wounds of his suffering. And we are not to try to hide those wounds in history. And that includes our own sins and the harm that we may have done. Forgiveness does not mean forgetting, and we as the community of forgiveness are called upon by God precisely to be a people who remember, who retain, who hold the suffering of others, it's not about holding on to what's been done to me. It's more about being part of a community that helps me bear those wounds, that retains along with me. We do not hang on to these wounds vindictively or judgmentally, judgmentally but we retain We hold on to those memories of violence and harm in order that the wounds be not buried under a pile of denials, rationalization, or scapegoating. Jesus' community is called to bear witness to violence that has been done to others, to retain it, to remember the wounds and hold them. Again, not in a spirit of vindictiveness, but a spirit of sorrow, of woundedness. There is such a thing as intergenerational trauma, and the church must be a community that does not forget. Now, I think about the common complaint that's often aired, especially like, you know, in, in the Internet, but any, a lot of places, that anyone who brings up issues of systemic racism, particularly within the context of America's history of slavery, You know, and it wasn't that long ago, my friends. Slavery, Jim Crow laws, lynchings, or even housing regulations that that people will say, well, you're just perpetuating the problem by talking about it. You're just crying out racism where it no longer exists. And that's just a, well, (laughs) that's denial. We'll just, we'll keep it clean. That's denial. Our nation is mired in a history of deep wounds inflicted on peoples of color, and those wounds do not simply vanish over time. They may fester, they may be pushed underneath the surface, but they're still there. And my goodness, we know this. And that harm that's done also harms those who do it, and we are still reaping that whirlwind. In our society. It hasn't been that long ago, any of this, in terms of history. And again, the wounds may get smoothed over, buried under denial, or swept away by rationalization. But if I'm even halfway right about what's going on in this passage, Jesus, who bears the wounds of crucifixion, breathes on his community to be a community both of forgiveness and but of discerning when sins must be held, retained. Our country may prefer to forget, but uh, I can't forget this conversation with Shelley Rambo at Point Loma a couple weeks ago. Maybe the church is called to be the community of remembrance that retains. Jesus, the crucified, breathes his cruciform spirit upon us that we might be a people that bears witness to the deep wounds. We're to be a people who, following the Nazarene who was executed by an occupying military power, to stand with those who suffer, perhaps even standing as those who have been slaughtered, and whose ancestors suffered under the power of empire, and all too often under power that the church itself exercised. And we know this. And if it's the spirit of the crucified Jesus that is breathed upon us, it means we cannot forget the wounds that we ourselves have inflicted. Again, I'm not talking about vindictiveness or revenge. After all, though we do regularly confess that Jesus suffered under Pontius Pilate, we do not go on to say, and may Pontius Pilate burn in hell forever and ever. (laughs) We leave that sort of judgment to God but here's where I want to end. We leave that judgment to God. By the way, in the Gospel of John, it says God leaves that judgment to Jesus, and then Jesus says, I don't really judge anybody, but my word that I speak judges them. It's like nobody really wants to step forward and take on this role, and so we must hold this lightly and humbly But God leaves to us, Jesus' community of forgiveness, the responsibility not simply to forgive, as important that is, but also to remember, to retain the sins of human history, and especially those who have suffered under those sins. As the Father has sent me, so now I am sending you, receive my holy breath. Let us pray. Oh God, I humbly ask in Jesus' name that your Holy Spirit will help us to sift out um, the truth of this text, even if um, I've not gotten it. We pray that uh, your Holy Spirit would guide us. But above all, may we May we acknowledge that the Christ we serve is a wounded Christ, and thus uh, we cannot turn away from the wounds of those around us and those who have lived before us. We ask for your help, we pray that the risen Christ, wounds and all, truly that you will breathe your spirit as we have prayed throughout this service. Breathe upon us breath of God one more time. We thank you in Jesus' holy name, amen.